morning. Um, and I admit, I struggled a little bit this week with what to preach on. Actually, picking a new sermon series is kind of, as a pastor, it's a tough thing because you always want to do something that's relevant uh, to the people that you're talking to. Uh, when I was in seminary, they actually told us, as a pastor, you need to be a student of three things. You need to know and study the Word of God. You need to know the church, the, the local church that you're serving and the people there. And you need to know the world uh, around us that we're living in. And the best sermon series are ones that combine all of those things so that you end up with a message from the Word of God speaking to a local church and you're speaking a relevant truth about the world that we're living in. And as I was sort of pondering that, that was my goal, as I was pondering that this week, it occurred to me that there's actually a place in the Bible where Jesus himself does exactly that. Uh, Jesus literally sends letters to several different towns and cities that, uh, to the churches there about the state of their church and the world that they're living in. And that happens in the book of Revelation, uh, where we find the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And that's actually going to be our topic for the next few weeks. Uh, so if you'll turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, and there are people who do get worked up about not making that plural. I don't know why, but they're very excitable. It's not revelations. It's revelation, singular. It's one unit. Uh, I'm not that fussy. Well, like, <laughs> probably I've corrected a few people this week, but uh, only as a point of just to show you, I guess. Um, it's revelation. And more specifically, if you look at the very first verse, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, I want to be clear, we're not going to cover the entire book in this series, just the first three chapters, because I actually preached on this in Innisfail about 20 years ago. And after I was done, you know, the chapter three, I stopped and went on. There's some dear saints came up to me. They were, well, I got an earful because they thought I was going to keep going. They thought, oh, we're going to cover the whole book. It's going to be one. No, we're just, again, first three chapters. Don't be mad at me uh, when I stop. And that's, again, several weeks, probably take us close to Easter when we're done. But this morning, we're just going to, we're going to aim to do mostly just a bit of an introduction, uh, just to set the stage for the weeks ahead. And to do that, you can follow along with me as I read our passage this morning, Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 17, the first part of 17 this morning. If you'd like to follow along, it's up on the screen as well. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sin by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, 
He is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance uh, that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Let's pray. Father God, as we come once again to open up your word, we pray that, Lord, you would be our guide, that you would lead us into truth, and that, Lord, we would come hungry for that truth, seeking to hear from you and to see you, and that, Lord, we would see you this morning uh, through these words that John wrote so long ago, that they would... Lord, resonate true in our lives, even here today, even in this moment, in this hour. And that, Lord, in hearing them and in seeing you, we would be changed and transformed. Lord, we just invite you into our time this morning to work in our hearts. That, Lord, you would have freedom to do all that you need to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to begin this morning with another confession. Uh, thankfully, it's not about mushrooms and Parmesan cheese. I heard from you all last week about all of those things. This time, my confession is about getting the mail. Uh, and I'm not sure if it's because I'm getting grumpier as I get older, but I have to tell you, I don't really enjoy getting the mail anymore. Uh, I'm not, and it's not just because, you know, now we have to walk to those super mailboxes down the street. They used to bring it right to your house if you're old enough to remember that. No, it's not just that. It's because... More and more, all I seem to get in the mail is junk and bills, right? Like It's just like, you go get your junk and bill run. It's just terrible. Neither of which I really want. I don't, anyways, to the point where you begin to wonder if anyone sends anything good in the mail anymore. Uh, in fact, I heard, this is interesting, I heard a trivia question on the radio a while back that kind of shocked me. And it asked, what common household item have most people under the age of 25 never used? You know what the answer was? A postage stamp. Yeah, it's true. Like Some of you are nodding. Some of you are shaking your head in disbelief. It's no wonder I don't get anything good in the mail anymore. Like Nobody sends anything. But it wasn't always like that. I remember being a kid. When I was young, getting mail was a magical thing. You know, every day you'd hear the, the thump on the mail being put in the mailbox. You'd run out to see what was there, you know, and 
even more special, sometimes, even as a kid, there was something in there with your name on it, especially, you know, around your birthday or Christmas time. Oh, it was just, it was so excited. I even remember, as a, you know, fairly young kid, I received, you know, a mail about 12, 13 years old. It was from a girl I met at Camp Caroline. You know, we had a crush on each other. And sure enough, after camp, you exchanged, you know, addresses you promised to write. She went home to Calgary. I went home to Edmonton. And she kept her promise to write. I was a little less faithful in keeping my promise to write. But, you know, she sent me a letter. She sent me a little picture. And, you know, I kept it. I kept that letter. I kept that picture. And what makes it really special is, you know, years later, I would meet that girl again at the very same camp. And I asked her to marry me. And she said yes. And we raised a family and did all that fun stuff together. And so, you know, as much, I guess the point is, as much as I think male today is a poor shadow of what it used to be, there are times when receiving a special letter that was just written just for you by someone you love and someone who loves you, sometimes getting a letter like that can change your life. And with that all sort of out of the way, I can tell you that's exactly what's happening as we come to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a very special letter that is written to the church by Jesus Christ himself. And right from the start, we find the purpose for this letter. Chapter 1, beginning of verse 1, we see the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. The purpose of this letter is revelation. It's the name of the book. And that word revelation it just means to make something known. Uh, it's, the root word comes from the same word as, as the word reveal. It's to, it's to pull back the curtain and say, what's behind the curtain? New car, now you know, it's been revealed. It's to unveil something that was previously unknown. It is now made known. So this revelation of Jesus, this, this book of the Bible as a whole, it's all about things Jesus wants us to know that were not known to us before. Because, you know, even after every other book of the New Testament was written, you know, and complete, even after the Gospels and, you know, all the other epistles were, were, were laid down, there was still something more that Jesus wanted his church to know about the things to come. There was more church, we, more truth that we need to hear to live our lives more fully. There was more truth Jesus wants, you know, his people to hear before he sort of closes the pages of Scripture for good. And the book of Revelation is that truth. And it mostly deals with what things we call eschatology. Theologically, eschatology is part of theology. And it just means the last things. You know, the book of Revelation is, is a guide that Jesus gives to the church so that we can know how God is going to conclude and you know, just wrap up and put a bow on the plan of salvation and redemption upon the earth. It details events that are sort of still on God's to-do list when it comes to human history. It's God's roadmap from, from right here where we are right now. It's his roadmap to say, this is how we're getting to the new heaven and the new earth. And there's no other book in the New Testament quite like the book of Revelation. In fact, it's the only book in the Bible that has a specific blessing for people who read it. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. 
And you know, I admit at times the book of Revelation can be, it can be a bit of a head scratcher in places. If you've read it, you know. There's all kinds of strange imagery on its pages. There are parts that are confusing. There's parts that are very hotly debated about what they mean. But you know what? No matter where you stand on some of those issues, when you open the pages of this book and you begin to read it, it's not long before your adrenaline starts pumping. It's not long before you know, life starts racing through the arteries of your faith. And your imagination is stirred by you know, these powerful images of what God is going to accomplish. This book engages our senses and it stimulates our intellect. And as you read it as a Christian, you really begin to see your life from a new perspective. You know, you begin to see the church as a mighty army marching for Christ. You begin to see even the lowliest saint as a warrior engaged in a battle between good and evil. You see prayer become a powerful weapon in the war against Satan and his evil ones. And you begin to see Christ no longer as a meat carpenter who died on the cross, but as the living and risen Lord of heaven and earth. And you know, you can't help but be caught up in the story because this book lets us know that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are part of this story. And that's something else that I really love about the book of Revelation is that it just it reveals to us a heavenly view of the spiritual truth behind our everyday lives. And again, even though we're going to only look at the first three chapters, I would encourage you to be reading through the entire book of Revelation. It's a blessing. Because I want you to hear the message that Jesus wants the church to hear. And to get the message to that church, we see Jesus enlist the help of a guy named John. And John was John the Apostle. He was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. And the time that this book was written, John would have been a very old man. Uh, He would have been the last of the original 12 disciples left. And he was the last one for, for quite some time. The year is actually about 90 AD when he wrote this. So even 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus, if you want to do the math. And most of the first generation of believers had now passed away. You know, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection um, were just weren't around anymore. So John may have been sort of one of the last voices left who, who kind of had the authority to take a message like this to the church as a whole. And that message begins for us in earnest in verse 4, where it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and who freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom uh, a priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And honestly, you read that, like, how's that for an introduction? You know, in even just a few verses, we've heard about the sovereignty of Christ. We've heard about the kingdom of God. We've heard about the resurrection of dead. You know, we've been told that Christ loved us, that he died for us, that he freed us. And we've been told that one day Christ will return for his church. 
And that he will come in glory and in power and in authority and in might and the dead will rise and every eye will see him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and God. And really when we read those words, they should be a reminder to us that in our lives before any other thing, any other priority, any other concern, any other commitment, those words remind us Jesus is the one that matters most. And when you read those words, I mean, you begin to forget about our light and momentary troubles. You, for, you begin to forget about, you know, needing that Tim Hortons coffee, you know, as you're driving to work. You, you begin to forget about the headaches of just living a life. You begin to, you know, forget about the, the struggles you're having with your kids or your coworkers or the problems with your health. When you hear those words about Jesus, everything else in our lives kind of fades away as our eyes are lifted to see the greatness of our Savior. And again, it just confirms in our heart that Jesus is the one worthy of living for, no matter what the cost. But of course, living for Jesus is not going to always be easy. In fact, just the opposite. And we get a picture of that in verse 9 as John continues saying, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so just for some context here, again, as I said, he was, John was writing about the year 90 AD. So it took place during the rule of, of, of the Roman emperor, emperor named Dominion, or Domitian. Um, and that means that you know, there were earlier sort of persecutions of the church under emperors like Nero, uh, but those had all been relatively localized. You know, they'd break out around Rome or in different areas. But under Domitian, persecution was just, it became widespread against the church. There was nowhere left for Christians to hide. Persecution was everywhere. And it's a time of the church that John refers to as a time of tribulation, uh, which I think is a foreshadowing of the great tribulation that will one day overtake the earth. And again, Christians everywhere were suffering. They were being beaten. They were being abused. They were being arrested and even killed for their faith. And even John, John, one of the 12, John the apostle, even John had not escaped suffering. Um, that's why John says, uh, you know, he's a partner in the tribulation with them. And he says, don't miss these words. He says, it's because on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's saying, you know, these people were suffering and undergoing this suffering because they were faithful to the truth, they were faithful to Christ, and they were faithful to proclaiming the gospel. And that meant even John, uh, now again near the end of his life, he'd been exiled to the island of Patmos for his role in leading the church and preaching the gospel. And Patmos was, Patmos was nothing but a small chunk of rock. It's about 16 square miles in size located off the coast. It was an island located off the coast of Asia Minor. And it was basically a prison colony. It's where prisoners were put and they were forced into hard labor of mining stone. And I actually have a map there. Uh, is there another map? Is there a bigger map? There's, so this is the map of context. If you want some context, so you have Italy, you know, the boot there with Rome. And then next to it, as you're going sort of east, that's Greece with Corinth and Athens, all those places. Uh, also get a little idea where Israel is with Jerusalem. So, you know, that's kind of, get your context. 
Uh, if you see Ephesus, that part right there is Asia Minor in the old days. Today, it's modern-day Turkey. Um, so that's where we're zooming in on when we talk about the churches in Asia or Asia Minor. It's, it's modern-day Turkey. So go to the next slide there. And these are the towns, uh, the, the, the places uh, that contain, while well, it contains the seven towns with the, with the seven churches that Jesus is going to write to. And you can see Patmos there. Uh, it's actually too small even to show up on the map, but it would have been, would have been right, sort of located right there, sort of in, in the middle of the whatever sea that is. I probably should have checked. Um, <laughs> but again, those are, when you look at those, other, those are the seven towns that Jesus is writing letters to. And I, again, each town there had a church, a little body of followers of Jesus. And what's interesting about those churches is they had a very diverse background. Very diverse sort of histories. Uh, you know, some of them were started by Paul on, on, you know, his missionary journeys. Others were started by other missionaries who traveled around. Some may have been church plants from, from neighboring churches. And some of those churches were very rich. They were very wealthy. Some of them were dirt poor. Some of those churches were big, almost what we would call a mega church today. Some of them were very small. Some of them held very tightly to doctrine. Some of them had allowed false teachings and false teachers into their midst. But every church in those towns was, was different and unique. Some of them were faithful and worthy of praise. Some, some of those churches had very deep, very real problems that Jesus needs to talk to them about. But Jesus has a message that each and every one of those churches needs to hear. And that's why in the next two chapters of the book of Revelation, Jesus sends a personal letter to each and every one of those churches. And what's relevant to us is that as you read through those seven letters to the seven churches, it's actually very easy to see ourselves in the church's place because, because the churches are so varied. Any church, even churches today, can, can kind of see itself in the place of that church. At least one of those churches, if not more of those churches. As Jesus writes you know, and, and speaks to these churches, it speaks to us today in some of our very similar circumstances. It speaks very powerfully to us as, as it did to the original uh, readers. And the lesson, I guess, is that even though the emperor, the powers that be, you know, even they, the, though they wanted to dump John off you know, on some remote island and forget about him, thinking he was silenced, you know, one day Jesus himself shows up and says, you know what, I have different plans. He's going to send a message, and here's how that message comes about in John's own words. Beginning again in verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see a voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at my feet, at his feet, as though dead. Now, do you remember that old postmaster's oath that went something like, neither sleet nor rain nor snow nor dark of night or something like that shall keep me from delivering the mail? Or I'm not sure quite how it goes, but that's nothing compared to what John had to endure to get the messages to this churches because the oath says nothing about being struck down like a dead man before the glory of the Lord. Um, but I think we can safely say that this was an experience that John would never forget. And I don't want us to rush past this. You see, I don't want to rush past this moment before we, as a church, try to behold and take hold of the glory and the greatness of God that is on display here. Because this is really the heart of the message I want you to hear today about the greatness and the glory of the God that we serve. Now, A.W. Tozer once said, God is always greater than anything that can be said about him. No language is worthy of him. He's more sublime than all sublimity, more loftier than all loftiness, more profound than all profundity, more splendid than all splendor, more powerful than all powerful, more truthful than all truth, greater than all majesty, more merciful than all mercy, and more just than all justice. He says nothing anyone can say about him is enough. And I think that's precisely what John was experiencing here. There are no words that could do this moment justice. And if there were, there wouldn't be enough of them. Because this is the risen Lord Jesus in all of his glory. Because our God is the Lord Almighty. Our God is a God whose word breaks Caesars and shakes the wilderness and makes the oak swirl and strips the forest bare. The Psalms say he lifts his voice and the earth melts. He's a consuming fire. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's Jehovah God who reigns from everlasting to everlasting. When Moses saw him in the fire, he hid his face in fear. When Isaiah beheld his glory in the temple, he said, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And when John sees him on the island of Patmos, he falls down at his feet as though dead. Because you know the angels in the book of Revelation had it right in Revelation 5 when they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They say, I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So part of me feels sorry for John, for old John, lying in the dirt, face down before his Lord. But a bigger part of me, I think, is jealous of what he got to experience. Because there are times when I wish that we could all live our entire lives in the, the, the awe of that kind of a moment before the Lord. I wish that we could live our lives on the verge of being overwhelmed by who Jesus truly is. 
I wish that we as a church could exist in every moment with the knowledge of the true greatness of God and the true greatness of Christ before us. And I wondered, I think, just how would that transform the way that we live? If we could live with Christ always before us. Because I think one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible is from Jeremiah 2, verse 19, where God says to his people, you have no awe of me. And yet so often that's how we live. And I know it can be so easy to lose sight you know, of the things that really matter in life, how distractions can come in, how easy it is to, to kind of lose that passion and just start going through the motions when it comes to our faith. But this is a reminder we need to break out of the rut. We need to let the greatness and the glory of God burn brightly in our lives every day. And I'll give you two reasons that living with the knowledge of the greatness of God matters. These matter especially as we come to the book of Revelation. Both of these actually matter very much to anyone who finds himself living in these last days. Now the first reason is control. It reminds us that God is so great that he's in control of all things. And you know, in the book of Revelation, we are told that there will be hard times ahead for the church. There's going to be persecution. There will be tribulations. There's going to be times when things around us feel like they're going off the rails. Times when we will wonder if God is still in control. But the greatness of Jesus reminds us that God is in control and that he is completely sovereign. And that he is almighty and he is all-powerful. And it reminds us that whatever happens next, he is supreme over it. That not a hair falls from our head that God doesn't know about. I like the words of a theologian named Abraham Kuyper, who says, when Jesus looks at his universe from his exalted throne at the right hand of the Father, and he sees the great galaxies whirling in space, the planets and the people upon this planet, and all the minute details of life here, including the details of our individual lives, there is nothing that he sees anywhere of which he cannot say, mine. Because he's in control. And he is sovereign over all things. And then the second reason that the greatness of God matters It's because God is on our side. You know, when the Bible asks the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't even need to wait for an answer. The greatness of God reminds us there's nothing and no one who can stand in God's way or change his plans or alter the course that he has laid out or even separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. And all that God has done, will do and is doing is done first for his glory but it also for our eternal benefit as his people. Because, you know, it is the wonder of all wonders, it's the marvel beyond marvelous that the God of the universe, the all-powerful God, the creator God, that he loves us. That God is not just powerful, but he is personal. He's not far off, you know, too busy running the universe to notice humanity. No, he loved us. And he loved us so much that he died for us. And that he is here. He is here with us. And he wants to have a relationship with us. And all that he is doing here on this planet is to get us to a place of redemption 
you know, to, to make it all right and fulfill his promises. And that's an amazing thought. In fact, I've read these words before, but I want to read them again. A man named David Redding, he just says it so well when he says, there is no other blessing I can give you. No gift so precious, no treasure so refreshing, nothing that can provision you for the journey we are all making than to tell you that there is a God who is searching diligently for you. He's not a stationary God. He's crazy about you. The expense to which he has gone isn't reasonable. It's incredible. It's amazing. The cross was not a very dignified ransom. To say the least, it was a splurge of love and glory lavishly spent on you and me that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And the greatness of God, the greatness of Jesus is reflected in his love for us. And there's so much comfort to know that he is on our side. And you know, in all the weeks ahead, we'll get more into the details about what Jesus has to say to each of those seven different churches. And there'll be some important lessons in each of those details. But for today, there's one lesson I want you to go home remembering this morning. If you remember nothing else, just remember the greatness of the God that we serve that he is almighty God, that he is in control, that he is on our side, that he loves us with an unimaginable love so that even in a world that so often rejects him, we can know that Jesus is worthy of being the center of all things, the center of our world, the center of our church, the center of our lives. And knowing who Jesus is, knowing the truth about Jesus and seeing his greatness, it changes changes how we live. It changes our priorities. It changes our perspective. It changes our values. It changes our church. It changes the way that we see the world around us. And before any other thing, may we see Jesus in our lives. <clears throat> so let us see the greatness of Jesus Christ and seek to live our lives in awe of his glory. Let's pray. May we see you, Lord, in our lives, in our church. May we see you high and lifted up. May we see your greatness. May we see your glory. May we see your majesty. May our eyes be fixed on you in all that we do. And in beholding you, may, may these trials and tribulations of our world and our lives just fade away in comparison to your glory. And Lord, in seeing you, may we be changed. Because Lord, we will know that you are greater than. You're greater than our troubles. You're greater than our sorrows. You're greater than the problems that come our way on a daily basis. You're greater than our possessions that we so often run after. You're greater than our careers. You're greater than politics and politicians and all of those things, Lord. And in seeing your greatness, may we know that we ought to seek you first. And seek you with all that we are. And as I said, Lord, may, as we seek you, may all of those other things fade into the background as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And may we live our lives in a constant state of awe of the greatness of who you are. And Lord, in the weeks ahead, as we look at this book of Revelation and the letters to the seven churches, we pray that, Lord, you would speak to our lives and our church about how we can live in the times we find ourselves living in. But 
Because, Lord, these last days are a challenge. But, Lord, we also pray that, Lord, you would challenge us as believers to be more fully committed to all that you are. And I pray that, Lord, we would know and that, Lord, you in our church, you would be the center. You'd be the center of our lives as well, knowing that you are in control and that, Lord, that you care for us in all that you do. But, Lord, may you be high and lifted up before us in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.